1: and welcome to episode 174 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in the very balmy St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me as always, David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas.
0: Hello, David, hello. I started
1: with you today. I usually do Nathan first.
0: I, I, I know. I'm, I'm actually caught a little bit off guard because usually I have time to prepare myself, but, but now I don't.
1: You prepare yourself to say Hello. Yes. Now that's an introvert, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh also joining us number two instead of number one today is uh Nathan Gilmore, a associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Did I get that right?
2: Yes indeed. Uh I've gotta know though what counts as balmy in Minnesota.
1: It was seventy one degrees yesterday.
2: No, it was warmer in Minnesota than in Georgia though, then uh,
1: I know I know that I shouldn't be saying this, but I really want it to get cold, if only because there's a colony of wasps living between my window and my screen in my office, so I can't open the window.
2: That's a good yeah. enough reason to uh, wish for cold.
1: A good freeze will kill them all off.
2: Oh, I know, I know.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait for God to send them to hell. <laughs> Now is the time of the show where when Nathan is hosting, he reminds us that the Christian Humanist podcast is just one of the many fine podcasts on the Christian Humanist radio network.
2: (laughs) But Michael's not going to do that.
1: Uh, I think the only new show this week is uh, a Profiles Interview.
2: Yep. That sounds about right, yeah. But,
1: you know, we also have Book of Nature. We also have Sectarian Review, the Christian Feminist podcast. Eventually, I'm sure the Pie to Schoolman podcast will come back.
2: Yeah, I forget what Chris said his plans were, but he does have plans to do another series.
1: Oh, man, does he have plans? It, we, he sent us the uh, the prospective series for that for that show, and it made me feel terrible for the <laughs> minuscule <laughs> amount of preparation we do for this program.
0: The, the the reams of reading that we do in preparation for every laboriously uh, fashioned week, we're like hipster craftsmen, you guys.
1: This is an artisanal podcast Yes (laughs) Wow We're calling this episode Tolkien for the Hostel Um, One of our smart aleck listeners, Joel Joslin Wrote in while I was on my sabbatical And said that they should do an episode about Tolkien Where I'm not there to snark about it So the joke's on him We're doing it now and I'm going to snark about it Um, I believe I have made my position on Tolkien clear through the years it's the only thing that upsets my students more than learning that i hate pilgrim's progress i do not like tolkien i have read the hobbit and i have read the first book of the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and i decided at that point that i did not need to read anymore that these books were not just uh, just not for me early in the run of the uh the show, I believe I quoted, oh, I can't remember who it was now. It was one of the inklings who, when Tolkien began to read yet another chapter of Lord of the Rings, said, oh, not another effing dwarf.
2: Yes, uh, Hugo Dyson.
1: Hugo Dyson. I was going to yeah. call him Hugh.
2: I think
0: it was Elf, but, you know. That's Either way, okay.
1: there are too many effing dwarves and too many effing elves. <laughs> <laughs> and elving Fs, to be fair. <laughs> So, I'm going to let Oy you guys there. attempt to defend Tolkien against my advances, and at the very least, um, tell me why maybe I'm misreading him. Um, you guys must have different experiences with him than I do. Uh, tell me how you discovered his work and how it captured your imagination in the way that it has utterly failed to capture my own. <laughs> David, we'll start with you.
0: Okay. Um Capturing my imagination. Well, the first thing that it did was terrify me. I remember very, very distinctly one Thanksgiving as when I was a wee lad watching television at my grandmother's house and the Hobbit cartoon, the old Rankin (laughs) Bass Hobbit cartoon coming on TV and Gollum just scaring the bejeebers out of me. Uh, he, was, he was just terrifying, and I remembered, that was scary, but there was a dragon, and that was kind of neat, and lots of singing, and none of it made sense, and I didn't finish watching it because I was scared. Shortly thereafter, I noticed that my dad read the same four books every year, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings Trilogy and i recognize wait a minute that book that my dad reads every year is the book that's about the movie that scared me
1: to to be fair i think the book came before the movie
0: oh it did it <laughs> did i'm but I'm, I'm the the you know the order of not the order ascending the order in which i knew things not the order in which they were <laughs> um so the, I picked up the Hobbit when I was eight or nine, book that it had scared me. And I wanted to, but my dad read it all every year, so I wanted to read the thing that I thought was edgy and scary. And I loved it. I, I, I connected to it because um, it was about a short person who's also scared but manages to be brave because he's also clever. And all of those things described what I was or what I wanted to be. I was not very big. um, I was scared, but I wanted to be brave and I wanted to be clever. So You were Bil- fairly hobbity. Yeah. So, yeah, Bilbo Baggins was, he was one of three role models for me when I was eight, nine, ten Um, Encyclopedia Brown, Jim Hawkins from Treasure Island and Bilbo Baggins. Uh, so later on I went, you know, when I was around 14, I read the, I read the rest of the trilogy and they scared me too. And I kept reading them because they scared me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my story of coming to, coming to Tolkien. So it's, it's, it's very much about these are the books with which I kind of came of age at particular points. So, just as you cannot possibly be objective about the Back to the Future movies, <laughs> <laughs> I I cannot possibly be objective about the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Objectivity's I, but,
1: overrated, anyway.
0: Well, that's what I've heard.
2: Agreed.
1: Nathan, how about you?
2: Well, I actually came to this uh, series, these novels, uh, fairly late. Uh, I was, as a high schooler, a cyberpunk kid, I was reading Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and those sorts of um, sort of nihilistic science fiction novels rather than fantasy novels. Uh, I I actually, and I mean, I I might be the only person for whom this is true. (laughs) I I actually took uh, a semester of Old English before I started reading the the Lord of the Rings novels. Uh, And then it was only several years after that that I read The Hobbit. Uh, and honestly, the reason that I read it was because first of all, you know, medievalists at grad school were always talking about him and I wanted to do something other than nod when they talked about it. Uh, and then also the Pete Jackson movies were coming out. So I wanted to be able to answer the inevitable question. Uh, you know, were the Pete Jackson movies like the novels. So I did (laughs) sit down late in my twenties and read all three of the Lord of the Rings novels later on when the uh, Hobbit movies were coming down the pike. I went ahead and sat down and read The Hobbit. I've dipped into them since, but uh, again, unlike a lot of folks who do medieval literature, I've only ever read through the four novels once.
1: And you've never uh, read The Silly Merillion?
2: I have dipped into it, but I've never read it cover to cover. So I, I am, you know, if, if you think of Michael as the anti-Tolkien person and David as the Tolkien person, uh, I am that uh, middle person entity, uh, you know, that probably should be a Tolkien person, but just hasn't gotten around to it.
1: Mm. David, I'm uh, thinking one of the things that makes you early modernists like Tolkien, the many, many connections in his fiction to the texts of that era. Uh, What am I missing in Lord of the Rings if I've not read any old English texts other than Beowulf? And that was more than a decade ago.
0: Right. It does help to know that Tolkien is a scholar, he's a medievalist, and I'd say technically he's even further back than you could legitimately call early modernist. C.S. Lewis I would, I would conceivably call early modernist because he's all about how the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance are really not that different. Mm-hmm. But Tolkien's dealing with things that are just after Rome falls, and so that's that's even, even beyond where the lines are usually drawn for, for early modern. He's a medievalist in particular. He's an Anglo-Saxonist, not only in terms of scholarly interest, but also in terms of his disposition. He's in tune with the medieval in particular and the old in general. That's his turn of personality. So one way to look at The Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth or Hobbit, one way to look at these books and answer your question would be to do sort of a source hunt and say, oh, look, all the hobbits in The Hobbit are named after dwarves that are named in the Old Norse Elder Edda or whatever. We could, we could play that game. It's fun. You can do it at home. <laughs> what I would rather talk about is the flavor of the medieval that got into Tolkien's bones to the point where he had to tell stories that were shaped like that not just in terms of incidental details or references, but the very kinds of stories that he must tell. He is interested in a couple of things. He's interested in the pagan past, and he's interested in the Christian uh, past, the Christian kind of storytelling. And one, one of these he talks about in his long essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, in which he attempts to capture why it is that the Christian Beowulf poet is so fascinated by the story of ancestors before Christendom. And what it is, he says, is a fascination with the idea of a kind of noble humanity and courage in the face of encroaching death and darkness that is inevitable. Mm -hmm. That the defeat of humanity by death and by the dark is something that can't be, uh, it can't be avoided. The darkness will fall. But the idea of a kind of pagan heroism that continues to fight even in the face of Ragnarok, even in the face of that ultimate defeat, that a kind of pagan heroism that would continue to fight the long defeat, even past hope, that's something that's enormously important for Tolkien. Not only is he scholar- interested as it, in it as a scholar, but I can't help but imagine that sometimes that's how he got through the day when he was in the trenches in World War One. Mm-hmm. Well, so I can
1: appreciate that at least.
0: Yeah, he. It, yeah. So there's that. The other half of it you get in his essay on fairy stories, and that's the idea of a joy of a catastrophe that isn't a a sudden unexpected turn to the awful, but the sudden unexpected turn of the awful to the good, a moment of, of unexpected grace and joy that just sort of comes out of nowhere. And I'll read just a little bit of that he talks about, uh, how fairy stories deny a universal final defeat. And in so far, uh, and in, in, in that way is an Evangelium, a gospel giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. And that's the other thing that's, that's animating him. One, this fascination with courage in the face of defeat, but the other, is this idea of hints of, of a joyful turn hints of a gracious, a gracious uh, rescue, um, a hope that comes out of nowhere. Those two things animate him. And one is the pagan middle ages and the other he sees, he sees as coming from the Christian middle ages. You see him connected to the gospel. So both of those things are, are things that he gets being medievalist that, uh, he then puts into his stories. Those those are the moments that are important for him, and those are the moments that work best. When he's describing the last moments of fighting in a battle in which all hope seems to be lost, or when he's describing that moment where inevitable b- defeat turns and characters who had expected death receive life, those are the moments, I think, where he's strongest. Mm-hmm. Nathan
2: To that, I would add just a couple things. Uh, first of all, just to notice the differences among the different peoples of Middle Earth in this respect, uh one of the one of the absences that's most notable in the Lord of the Rings is that uh you never see an elf graveyard, uh. even though I mean you visit dwarf tombs and human tombs and all sorts of places of the dead. Uh, you still have the elves over there, and of course, you know, elves are involved in large battles where people die, but the setting, if you will, is a reminder that what elves do is they they, they don't get buried, they go off across the sea, mm. and of course there are echoes there of, of pagan burial rituals, but there's also the sense that there is a land beyond the land uh, that makes this truly a Middle-earth. Mm. Um, yeah. The other thing that I would just to add is that there's definitely a resonance there uh, between England after World War I and the sort of world that you receive in poems like The Seafarer and The Wanderer and The Ruin. Uh, I, I definitely think that Tolkien is seeing in those poems uh, a resource for himself to handle the fact that the England in which he grew up, really did die in the mm. years between you know England's entry into World War 1 and the end of World War 1 and you get a sense that especially Frodo in the Lord of the Rings returns to the Shire but his soul never does yeah and you know the i mean honestly for my money I mean that is the the most heartbreaking part of those novels is that he finally gets to come back to the Shire but he realizes that he's never going to be home there again and uh you know that there there there's definitely some medieval work going on there and there's a, definitely some post world war 1 work going on there
0: yep
1: again i can appreciate that uh nathan another element of tolkien's novels that seems to have sources beyond them is the ring itself. Uh, it has obvious similarities to Wagner's ring cycle. Tolkien mm-hmm. himself denied taking any inspiration whatsoever from Wagner, as I understand <laughs> it. So where does the ring come from, and what is it doing at the center of these novels?
2: It's fascinating because I I, I, I so want there to be a Wagner influence. <laughs> 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 because, of course, the ring cycle is this grand epic opera about the death of the gods and, you know, the fall of a world and the rising of a new world. Uh, but I'm going to take him at his word there and say we shouldn't go Wagner, so I'm not going to go Wagner. Instead, I'm going to go Plato. Uh, the ring uh, has an obvious antecedent in the so-called ring of Gyges, although one of our listeners will no doubt write in and say it didn't belong to Gyges, but an ancestor of Gyges. That's <laughs> uh, The point is that in Republic... Uh, And, you know, honestly, it's used in a a thought experiment. It's a parable. It has very little to do with the actual world of of 5th century Athens. But this ring, uh, in a very straightforward sense, turns people invisible. And the moral import of that for Plato is that it removes the consequences of crime. Uh, So if you are invisible and no one can ever find you, then you can pretty much commit whatever violence you want to commit in the world, and no one will will ever be able to find you, all right? Now, I realize if you watch cartoons as a kid, you know that there's half a dozen ways to detect an invisible person, but let's forget that for a second here. Um, In The Hobbit, uh, this ring, you know, is not much more than a plot device. What's a lot more interesting is the contest of riddles between Bilbo and, and Gollum, uh, you know, it it works as a you know a handy tool, frankly, for Bilbo to escape certain situations in the novel. Once you cross over into the Lord of the Rings, though, I really do think that it becomes a post World War II entity in the novels. Um, and I say that because the way that people talk about the Ring, uh, it is a it is a tiny instrument of immense power, and even to possess the thing is to be tempted into a walking death, basically. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it's not hard at all, you know, when, for instance, Faramir, and by the way, this is one of the things that Pete Jackson just got entirely wrong, we'll talk about that later, Uh, when Faramir says, uh, you know, even if I knew that I would lose this war, I still wouldn't use that thing, It's Mm. not hard to see that there is at least an echo of nuclear armaments going on there.
1: Tolkien denied that, though, right?
2: Of course he did. He also denied Wagner. What are you (laughs) going to (laughs) do? The other thing, though, that's that's an especially modern twist on it, I'm borrowing this from Tom Shippey, is that the Ring is addictive. Uh, And so in the Lord of the Rings novels, far more than in The Hobbit, you get the sense that, Uh, Smeagol used to be something resembling a hobbit in a previous life, but that continued exposure to the ring wasted him away until he became this frightening, dark creature that he becomes. And so the ring has all kinds of valences going on, all kinds of influences that Tolkien denied, and that's fine, he can do that. Uh, But the ring because it's such a focal point, it does, I mean, all kinds of jobs. I've probably forgotten two or three jobs that it does that uh, David's going to tell you about now.
0: <laughs> well, for one thing, it staves off aging. Yes. Uh, but it doesn't give you more life. Um, Bilbo describes it as feeling like too little butter scraped over too much bread. Uh, that that's That's kind of his expression for you. It doesn't give you more life. What it does is it gives you it gives you duration, and you, you become thinner as a mm-hmm. result in a certain sense. Um, answering the atomic bomb, the, that thing, he denied it. He denied seeing that connection, first because some people were trying to turn it into a straight allegory. Oh, sure, sure. And that, and that was far too, far too limiting for what he wanted uh, to accomplish. The other reason was that he had already started a draft... Uh, he'd started even, even though The Lord of the Rings was not finished and published until after World War II, he was already substantially into drafting The Lord of the Rings during World War II. Mm-hmm. So, it when he decided that the ring was important and settled on many of those important um, facets of you know what the ring does and why it's important to this war and so forth. Um, Nobody'd got nuked yet. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's a simple historical point. However, he was a soldier in World War One, and nuclear bombs are not the only faceless, mechanistic war of mass destruction. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um. So if if you if you look at Tolkien in his letters, there still is a connection to nukes, but it's in that temptation to use to, to, to seize power by means of this kind of naked, mechanical, dehumanizing, overwhelming means. Um, A sword is in a certain way human. (laughs) In the way that wrath is human. Um, A nuclear bomb is far beyond even, even human at its, you know, even even the sin of Cain, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And so the 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 ring represents in a certain way that the seizing of that kind of power, that kind of ultimate power, um, which is why it's which is why it's so tempting, and which is why even if a hero, um, you know, Gandalf refuses to touch the thing because it's it's just too much—the ability to just suddenly end this war. Um, is something that he refuses to do because he knows what having that power will do to him in the next moment.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's one important feature of the ring is that the temptation is commensurate to the being that has the ring. Right. So for Gandalf, it, it they never say it directly, but you get the sense that, as David said, he could end the war instantly because he is a being of massive, massive power Whereas when a hobbit gets a hold of it, it turns the hobbit invisible because the hobbit's natural inclination, if you will, is to avoid a fight rather than to enter a fight.
1: Hmm. What is it? It wasn't. Uh... Oh, man, I don't know their names. <laughs>
2: the, the little
1: fish eating monster.
2: Smeagol uh, Gollum. Yes. Gollum.
1: Yeah, I was going to call him Gremlin. I knew that was wrong. Wasn't he originally a <laughs> hobbit?
2: Yeah. Well, he's yeah, he was something like a hobbit. I, I I think it's a little bit ambiguous in the novel, uh, whether he was precisely a hobbit or another creature from another time that greatly resembles hobbits.
0: The appendices kind of say more or less a hobbit, but from a pre-Shire strain of hobbits that hadn't yet developed in the way they did. I see.
1: Okay. So his his internal nature was different.
0: Not not so entirely different that. That Bilbo doesn't feel in some sense connected to him on the base. And they actually make this point in the novel that both Gollum and Bilbo know how to tell riddles. They value riddles in the same way and they know some Mm -hmm. of the same riddles. And this indicates a certain kind of cultural connection.
2: Right. So he's a lot more like a hobbit than he is like a
0: man. Right. Something like that.
1: (laughs) Well, all this talk about races leads us into the next question, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, A few months ago, I think it was during a listener feedback episode, I took a shot at the Lord of the Rings for being pretty much explicitly racist. Uh, The personality characteristics of its characters fall down pretty neatly in terms of their races, as far as I know. I could not get you to fight with me then, David. Fight with me now. Why is this book not just a fantasy version of Birth of the Nation?
0: Oh, God. Well, for one thing, it doesn't want to put any one of these races in charge. <laughs> um for for another thing, they aren't races if you're talking about humans, hobbits, elves, dwarves, orcs, trolls. You're not talking about distinctions that are neatly mapped on onto what we call race. In our human sphere, um, you know a dwarf is a genuinely different kind of thing than is a man, um, and both of those are genuinely different kinds of things than is an elf so I, the, the, those those uh those terms don't map quite so neatly onto each other. Now the interesting thing is. And you would have to read that, the book that, that you won't even countenance reading, The Silmarillion, um, mm-hmm. to get into this. But there are actually ethnic and cultural distinctions within the races of elves and mm-hmm. the races of dwarves, um, as well as The Hobbit. Uh, the, the introduction to The Fellowship of the Ring walks you through basic um, ethnic and cultural distinctions in, uh, uh, among hobbits themselves. And there are also depictions of different human cultures in Middle-earth, um, the, the writers of the Rivermark are very different from the Dale men and the Hobbit, and both of those are very different from the men of Gondor, who are different yet again from the men of Bree, which is so near the Shire that it's practically a human Shire. Um, so there's real ethnic and cultural distinctions um, within races, and even within individuals from, from the same uh, culture, more or less, um, if you look at just our hobbits, Frodo is a very different kind of person from Samwise Gamgee. And both of them are very different from Brandy Brandybuck and Peregrine Took. Um,
1: You're making these names up, right?
0: No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, Frodo is a young scholar bachelor who's interested in things academic and, you know, he likes a long walk outside, but he likes that long walk outside alone, and he's interested in the past, and he's interested in poetry. Um, Sanwise Gamgee is a gardener. He's very much um, aligned with that kind of life of life of labor and service to Frodo, who is, who is an aristocrat. Um, and so they've got a kind of... Not just a race thing, but also a, a a class thing going on in their relationship. And then Mariadoc Brandybuck, also born into wealth, the way Frodo was, but he's very different because he's he's a Brandybuck, and Brandybucks live on the borders of the Shire. They're almost like a colonial people. They're more like, you know, if you could imagine aristocrats from Australia versus aristocrats from you know the heart of you know the heart of England. There's there's a kind of we live on the borders, our life is a little wilder, aspect to Mary, even though, um, you know he comes from roughly the same class in terms of privilege and whatnot as as Frodo Baggins, so it, there's you know there's difference even among individuals within the same race in broadly the same culture. Um, one thing that is interesting is that there are differences that map onto what, might, what you might call different species, and, it, and some of it ties back to what Nathan said earlier about there are no elf graveyards. Um, elves relate to death in a meaningfully different way than humans do, and one of the things Tolkien's attempting to do when he talks about elves and their tendencies is he's attempting to represent what that would do, what deathlessness would do to a culture. In a similar kind of way, dwarves. Dwarves are mortal, but they're incredibly long-lived, and they also had a different creator from humans and elves. And the fact that they were created by an entity who's something like um, the Roman god Vulcan um, means that they have within their nature. Uh, a desire to create, um, a desire to make things with their hands, with their imaginations, that uh, is is an overriding motif for their race, and it and it comes from their origin. Um, so, there there are these these overriding things that you're seeing. They're really there, but Tolkien isn't. It, it's it's not so much racism as in as as it is to an account for. To, to think through in cultural and individual terms what substantially different ways of being, um, what that would look like in terms, of, in terms of the way individual persons act and the way whole cultures develop. Even down to their sins. The sins of elves are very different from the sins of men, and both of those are distinct from the sins of dwarves. Um, they're tempted to do different things because of the way they inhabit the world and the way that life and death are different
1: for them. And what about the orcs? The, the fact that the uh the the bad guys in this book are dark-skinned and ugly and barely human
0: uh that has more to do with elvish fairy lore than it does to do with tolkien's um, uh, tolkien's ideas about black people um, they're very much straightforwardly supposed to be fairy tale goblins um, and he accounts for them in much the way that fairy tale goblins are accounted for um, if elves are his are, are his good fairies, orcs are fairies gone bad, um, they're, uh, uh, somewhere in the past they were elves, but, uh, the, the equivalent of Satan in Middle-earth's past, um, warped them, mutated them, selectively bred them to the point where, um, they're basically a race of moral monsters, um confirmed in their sin and kind of in the way that demons are in, uh, sort of traditional Christian theologies of, of how angels and demons work. So, I mean, if you, if you come at it from that, from, from a kind of modernist perspective and you try to trace, if you try to think of, if you're thinking of races that way, um, it could lead you in that direction. But I don't, that I don't think that's what Tolkien's up to he's 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 thinking of completely different creatures, besides there are actually black people in middle earth <laughs> um and they get treated humanely um in the War of the Ring, whereas uh orcs are monsters
1: Nathan are you convinced
2: <laughs> about, about the only thing I would add to what David said is that. You also get a strong sense that, especially when you get to the, the the middle of the three Lord of the Rings novels, uh, with the origins of the Urukai, you actually mm-hmm. get to see one of these species coming into being, and you really get a strong connection. Uh, I, and you know, David can tell you if it, if it's ever spelled out in the Silmarillion or in other works, but in the novel, it's at the very least implied that it is. Saruman who is the same sort of being as Gandalf is mm-hmm. who is actually warping these beings into the monsters that they become mm-hmm. so so it's interesting it is a version of original sin if you will in this story uh, that these creatures uh, have at the very core of their nature not because it's the way that any kind of god made them but because a very deliberate mechanized system of warfare shape them into these things, uh, that they are given to their particular sins, like David was talking. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 think honestly, I mean the fact that, you know, the elephant riding men ally with the orcs bothers me more than the fact that there are orcs. Uh, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that 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 was the part of the novel that you know troubled me more is that they you know these people who you know seem to be modeled after indians you know in a novel mm-hmm. that you know tolkien's writing towards the end of the british empire uh ally with the bad guys i mean that troubled me more than the trolls and the orcs and so on and so forth um
0: would you remember the bit when the man when the when when one of the peoples in the uh, one of those people with the humans um that were in the service of Mordor, um, they die in this ambush and Faramir sees them and talks and it talks about the dead um the dead soldier from the South. Do you remember that part?
2: No, I don't, so go ahead and talk a bit okay. about it.
0: Um you have this scene in which the character Faramir, they've they've ambushed these human allies of Sauron and Faramir stands over him stands over this dead man and imagines out loud what kinds of promises or threats must have driven this man from from where he came and what must he have been back at home and would he have would he have come here if he had been if he had been left the choice so it's it's this it's this humanizing moment of looking at the dead soldier and imagining I wonder if he was a farmer, I wonder if he was a you know, a tailor, I wonder what he was back home, because there was a home that he came from. Um you know, and th- and it's it's the kind of thought that it's the kind of thought that a man that was in World War One had.
2: You mm-hmm. know? I wonder just talk to me, so I didn't prep this at all. But mm-hmm. I wonder if the 21st century aversion to the species in Lord of the Rings has anything to do with the fact that we've had 30 years of Anne Rice novels and, you know, movies where werewolves and vampires and demons and other sorts of monsters are basically like us, but with fangs. Right. I I wonder if that sort of imagination has made what Tolkien was doing with the orcs less palatable. Because I'm just thinking, of, you know, of the Joss Whedon, you know, Buffy verse, in right. which, you know, vampires can be really quite good people. They just have, you know, certain addictions that, you right. know, make them, you know, a little bit dangerous to hang out with. But they're certainly not, you know, the spawn of hell in the way that they would have been in earlier Nosferatu legends.
0: Right. I, I think you might be onto something, but I haven't I haven't really dug into that too much. I,
2: I haven't either. Like I said, it just now occurred to me when you were talking about that, Michael. I mean, I, I have we convinced you, or are you still crossing oh, your own? Oh, I don't know. There? I don't know.
1: You know, <laughs> is is there anything more tedious than reading through old books and saying that's racist? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I I, uh, I I disapprove of that practice in general, but uh, I thought maybe I could get your dander up. as i said i read the fellowship of the ring and got so bored i never bothered getting the two towers um the part of fellowship that killed any possible interest in tolkien that i had good and dead was these seemingly endless scenes involving tom bombadil what the hell nathan
2: First of all, uh, I, I haven't done enough research to really know the sources behind Tom Bombadil, so I'll probably lateral to Grubbs for that part. Within the novel, though, Tom Bombadil emerges into the story when the Hobbits have first set out from the Shire. They're in a dark woods. Uh, they have been attacked by a tree, uh, which is a sign that your story is already going badly. What makes Tom Bombadil so fascinating is that he fights not with a sword nor with a bow, but he sings the tree to sleep and rescues them that way. And then he introduces the hobbits to the lady of the river who lives with them. And when they disclose to him that, you know, they're carrying the most dangerous weapon that the world has ever known, he takes it and he puts it on and he says, Ah, it's not much. And he, you know, fiddles with it and he does a, you know, a, a magic trick like you do with children, making it disappear. And, I can't remember if it appears behind one of their ears, but it should have. Uh, Tom <laughs> Bombadil is this figure who, in this novel of such moral gravity, the fate of the world is at stake. Uh, you know, the the survival of human beings as we know them is at stake. The rise of dark, evil forces is at stake. Tom Bombadil just doesn't care. Uh, and... For that reason, he is a figure who sits in the back of your consciousness as the novels get more and more grave, as they get more and more um, tense. All that time, you know that Tom Bombadil is sitting over there in his woods, uh, almost entirely unconcerned. The scene, though, that I like the most is actually after Tom Bombadil has disappeared from the novel, never to reappear again. When they are at the Council of Elrond, someone makes a suggestion, you know, uh, couldn't we just give the ring to Tom Bombadil for safekeeping, and that is almost automatically dismissed with, oh, we shouldn't do that, he might misplace it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, David, I mean, tell us a little bit about this figure. I mean, uh, I I know Tolkien, when he was pressed on it, tended uh, not to want to talk too much about Tom Bombadil
1: he was embarrassed too
0: if I remember correctly and you know I'm winging this answer um Tom Bombadil was a character that Tolkien had invented in some stories and poems that uh he had written for his children Mm -hmm. and he kind of worked it in to the Lord of the Rings um his ex, his, the in-universe explanation for Tom Bombadil is that he is not human. He's, he's of the same category of beings that the wizards and Sauron are. It's a sort of semi-angelic, semi-divine. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, he, he's a, he is in a very kind of straightforward way a spirit of the land. He talks about being the first was there and there are these particular, you know, entities called the if you're, you know, keeping score at home, um, <laughs> who were in some way functionally part of the creator making the world so that when the world came into being, they had a particular affinity for those parts of the world that they helped make and the world was made through song in the Silmarillion. So Tom Bombadil romping through the woods, singing and controlling his little, his little turf by means of song is in some way him continuing to relate to the world in that kind of primal way. Uh, there's a connection to the, uh, the Finnish, uh, the Finnish poem, the Finnish epic, the the Kalevala. There's a character named Vainamoinen who's supposed to be the first human ever, who roams across, who roams through the empty landscape and sings the natural world into existence. Uh, he's sort of half Adam, half Orpheus in the way he uh, is depicted. And Tom Bombadil is kind of a more folksy, silly English madrigal version of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's risky. A lot. Of, uh, Tom Bombadil loses a lot of people. There's a reason why Peter Jackson didn't include him in the movie. <laughs> but the more I go back to Tom, Tom Bombadil, the more I love him because he represents a kind of. A kind of reckless disregard for what would be taken seriously in the modern world—that is one of the things I love about Tolkien.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Tom yeah, Bombadil he... hears you. Tom Bombadil don't care.
2: <laughs> well, How or nice. I mean, you know, you can think of him as, you know, the the Anabaptist of Middle Earth. You know, when, it, <laughs> when everyone's very convinced that you need to take up weapons or else the world's all going to be destroyed, he says, ah, "I'm just not interested in that."
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, he he is he is the lord of his little realm, and he rules by singing, and that's kind of amazingly interesting. It's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting idea, and some have suggested that this is you know Tolkien sort of imagining what a pre fall Adam would have been like. I don't know. I, I'm I'm hoping that Adam wouldn't have been that silly, but I don't know that we would have, i don't know that adam would have been capable of conceiving anything he did as silly or dignified um mm. in kind of the same way that tom can't
1: would you say that tom bombadil is the lord of the things <laughs>
0: you might <laughs> that's actually nice
1: <laughs> uh, david nathan has accused me of not liking the aeneid because i read it as a failed novel instead mm-hmm. of an epic poem. Yeah. Um, you suggested, or seemed to suggest in our pre-show chatter, that trying to read The Lord of the Rings as a realist novel is an equally grave error. Uh, why is that, and what should I read it as instead?
0: You can speak with more authority on realism than I can. So if, if I commit a file, you know, throw a flag and set me straight. But at least my understanding is that when you're talking about realism in terms of literature... You're talking not just about the attempt to write realistically in terms of your description or your dialogue or your psychology or whatever, but it comes with a particularly modernist view of what is real in the world. Yeah, typically. Of what's most important in the world and of what kinds of stories are actually authentic representations of reality. Usually, sort of depressing ones. <laughs> <laughs> have I have I have any fouls yet?
1: I, I you know you're painting with too broad a brush. I, we we did an episode on realism probably three or four years ago. Right. Where, where basically, I think my position is there's no such thing as non-realist literature because every author believes he's portraying what's most important in realistic terms.
0: Yes. Well, in in that sense. Tolkien is doing realism, but he's not doing modernist realism because even though he lives then, that's not where his heart is. Um, or maybe more precisely and more accurately, he's a late Victorian living in the beginning, the first half of the 20th century. He dies in the seventies. Um, with a kind of longing for something that came before and a sincere belief that he's better suited for that thing that came before. Uh, I, I don't know that I want to actually say, yes, Tolkien's literally medieval. Um, <laughs> so so in, ter- in the terms that you just said, he is attempting to be real- realistic, but he doesn't believe in the kind of realism that um, is often, but not always, the subject of modernist realism in fiction. Well, he's, he's not he's not,
1: not naturalistic, right? I mean, because yeah. because what what you described is very far away from James Joyce, who I would call a modernist, and also a realist in the sense that he's trying to get at the thought processes that are that are realistic, but you're right, Tolkien is neither of those two things.
0: Yeah. He's he's simply not interested in it. And probably the closest thing that you could get to talking about Tolkien as a realist is in his essay on fairy stories when he believes that the shape of the fairy story towards what he calls eucatastrophe or that sudden unexpected turn towards hope, he regards that as something that is deeply true about reality because he sees it as, because that's the gospel. He's a Christian and he thinks that's, he thinks the gospel is the ultimate true story. So for him, realistic fiction is going to seek to capture that moment to look for it and to seek to capture what it feels like so that's i mean in in one sense if you speak of him as realistic that's the kind of realism he's talking about the other thing is he's just not reading those kinds of he's not reading books like that um he loved epics he loved scandinavian sagas um you know old viking stuff he loved William Morris and the Pre-Raphaelite, you know, attempts to write medieval type stories long after the Middle Ages were over. He also liked historical fiction and he liked popular adventure fiction. He liked John Buchan novels, which are basically uh, not exactly Tom Clancy, more like I guess more like Le Carre. It's like the Bourne movies except in the nineteen teens. <laughs> um,
1: D- didn't he also read popular science fiction?
0: Yeah, he read some. Uh, he he liked a lot of what was in H.G. Wells, but he didn't like H.G. Wells' worldview. So he's he's a genre fiction guy, right? He's not even attempting to do the kinds of things that you know gets you a Nobel. Um, mm-hmm. he. He's not he's not interested in that in that particular modernist project. So, if you if your aesthetics are attuned with that, The Lord of the Rings is going to leave you profoundly unsatisfied. But he's not even trying to swing at that pitch.
1: Why did he write it as a novel then? Why didn't, why didn't he write it as a uh, as an epic poem if if what he's interested in is so thoroughly medieval?
0: I'm glad you asked, um, well, for one thing, he is still interested in novels. He's interested in the historical novel and he's interested in the adventure novel and he's interested in the realistic depiction of the psychology of persons in tough situations there's There's a way in which he enjoys chivalric romance, but he knows because of experience that chivalric romance is deeply wrong in its depiction of war Mm. because he's lived it. And there's a way in which only the novel can tell the kind of story about war that he wants to tell. Um, And so he's turning, he's turning to resources from the historical novel tradition and from the, um, the adventure fiction tradition in order to capture those aspects of reality. The novel does that for him in a way that he likes. See, but, I think
1: you've just turned yeah. around and said that he's a realist after all.
0: Well, after you after you kind of tweaked me for broad-brushing realism and suggested that realism could be broader, <laughs> I'm attempting to conform to that. Because um, I, th- I think you're right. He's He is attempting to be realist in particular ways.
1: Because, I mean, I don't think anybody who complains about the Lord of the Rings not being a realist means oh well there's there's these races that don't actually exist in it
0: right i mean that, right. That,
1: that's a ridiculous complaint
0: <laughs> well it is i mean i've I've also heard uh, the the psychology of his characters critiqued or the plausibility of you know of the plot lines you know the people are too good, the happy ending is too. Well, but he believes in happy endings he believes that happy endings are the most true thing.
1: I I don't uh, necessarily think so. the happy ending makes it non realistic, but mm-hmm. I mean certainly if the psychology of the characters is flawed, you've got a you've got a problem from a realist perspective. Now if you're right. if you're writing something more akin to romance or epic where the characters can kind of stand in for archetypes, be my guest. Right. But you said in particular he's interested in realistic psychology of people who are in the middle of a war. Mm-hmm. So I mean I don't know I, I I read this I read the first book 15 years ago so I can't I can't mm-hmm. make any statements myself about the accuracy of his psychological characterization.
0: Just got finished reading a book on the topic, and actually that's uh we're going to be doing a profiles interview fairly soon about um Lewis tolkien and World War One Those books so,
1: never stop coming, do they no they don't there's <laughs> a new book on uh, Lewis and Tolkien published every three and a half weeks
0: hey it's it's a little cottage industry Works but this is a, this is a good one it's It's coming from a historian who's particularly interested in World War one so the the weight of it is more on the Tolkien and Lewis as post war writers and post war thinkers it's 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 more anchored in World War One looking at Lewis and Tolkien than it is the other way around.
1: Well, I will admit that I have seen the first three Peter Jackson movies or Pete Jackson, as Nathan calls him I assume you're just trying to get a square on our bingo card
2: <laughs> i got, I hadn't even thought of that. It just comes naturally. <laughs>
1: Uh, I did not see these movies by choice. I went to a party where I did not know they'd be playing, and then I found out that that was the sole raison d'etre of the party. So that is the context in which I've seen the the, the Lord of the Rings movies. I have avoided The Hobbit. Hmm. Um, what does Jackson get right and wrong in those adaptations? And if you want to talk about the uh, the Hobbit ones as well as the Lord of the Ring ones, that's your business. Nathan, let's start with you.
2: Well, first of all, Pete Jackson definitely follows in the path of George Lucas in the, in, insofar as he, he produced three good movies, I thought, for the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then produced a trio of prequels that made everyone defend the fact that they like the originals. Um, Does that mean J.J. <laughs>
1: J. Abrams is going to film the Silly Marillion?
2: Entirely possible, but I mean the Hobbit movies, just to, just to dispose with those quickly, are really bad. I mean, really bad. Uh, that, that's all I'm going to say about them. Listeners, if you want to contend with me on that one, I will contend with you on it. That said, let's talk about the Lord of the Rings movies because they actually have a lot of good things going for them. First of all, visually, they are just gorgeous. Uh, nice. It's hard to deny that. Uh, you know, the Hans Zimmer... Is it Hans Zimmer did that soundtrack, Grubs? Uh That sounds right.
1: It's either Zimmer or somebody ripping them off.
2: Okay, yeah. (laughs) uh, Whoever did the soundtrack, uh, again, I mean, it's just perfectly fitted to that to those movies, Uh, and really, I mean, it's hard to come up with anyone who really just chowed the acting. So, it's got a lot of things going for it.
1: The music is Howard Shore, by the way. I'm sorry to Howard Shore for calling you a Hans Zimmer ripoff.
0: (laughs) Howard Shore. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't
1: feel very Howard Shorey, does it?
2: Yeah, as soon as I said Zimmer, I knew that was wrong. So my apologies to Howard Shore, as if he's listening.
1: Um, I think he's a pretty big fan.
2: It was (laughs) H plus sibilant. (laughs) (laughs) At any rate. So lots going on uh, in favor of these movies. Uh, You know, by and large, I enjoy them. You know, I, I received the deluxe DVD set with all of the, you know, Tom Shippey interviews as a Christmas present and, you know... I display them unironically in my home. Uh, As far as, you know, a couple things that I would quibble with with regards to these movies that are otherwise quite good, one of them is the character Faramir really does get the short end of the stick. He is supposed Mm -hmm. to be the really heroic and specifically the moral hero that stands as the foil to his older brother Boromir. Uh, Uh In the novel, and I'm probably going to misquote it uh, because, like I said, I've only read through the novels once. He says something to the effect of, uh, you know, even if I thought that I could win the war right now with the ring, I still wouldn't take it. Uh So there's a sense there that there is an honor to warfare, and moreover that he has a sense that whatever this ring is, which never, you know, becomes entirely clear in the course of the novels, that it would turn him into something he doesn't want to become, even if it means he wins the war, that sets him apart from a lot of characters in this series of novels mm-hmm. in the movie unfortunately, uh, you know he is entirely willing to you know do violence to people to get the ring. he seems intent on on using the ring, and honestly, you know the reason why he shies away from using it seems to be almost exclusively that you know he has a sense that it'll give him some kind of tactical disadvantage uh so very very different character there the other thing and and i'm going to i'm sure draw some mockery for this one but what else is new um i know that people who didn't read the novels and then saw the movies said why in the world does it have six different endings uh Well, the answer is because the novel had 17.
0: Uh, Actually, I
1: think the real reason is they were trying to torture me at that party because I kept thinking the movie was over, and it went (laughs) on for another 45 minutes. Mm -hmm.
2: But some of the things that go on in the end of the novel are just very, very interesting. They're some of my favorite parts of the novels, and a lot of those got cut out. Uh, Now, the only other thing that I thought of saying, but someone, actually it might have been Grubbs at some point, I can't remember, talked me out of it is that at first I was uh, irritated that Tom Bombadil never did appear in the movies, never did get mentioned in the movies. And mm-hmm. then somebody, it might've been Grubbs, said, can you imagine what Pete, Pete Jackson would have done with that character? And I yeah. said, okay, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. The, so, there's
0: no Tom, Tom Bombadil is essentially unfilmable. There, there's just. just no way they would have got that right.
1: He would have just come out with a giant spliff, right? Uh, what? A marijuana cigarette david
0: oh that's <laughs> jive I... talk
1: for marijuana so,
0: sorry i i don't speak jive <laughs> and now we're into airplane <laughs> anyway,
2: <laughs> david won't you take this over because you've got obviously more background on tolkien than i do what sorts of things do you see in these films that are good and what
0: sorts of things are deficient i'm generally really positive about the original three like you are um Things are left out, but given the, just the enormous size and scale of, of the, of the Lord of the Rings, um, something had to get cut, you know, Mm -hmm. and for the most part, the additions to the story that are in, um, Peter Jackson's original, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, there are elements not just that are cut, but also elements that are added, Mm-hmm. For the most part, the elements that are added are there to patch over the, the, the mismatched scenes where cuts took place. So, you know, that, that kind of cinematic sin, I can forgive. It, it, mm-hmm. it makes sense. You know, I, I agree about Tom Bombadil. I wish he would have been there, but I can't imagine how it could have possibly been done and taken seriously. Right. Um, I really miss the fog on the Bear Downs with the Barrow Whites. Um, mm-hmm. the, the fact that they just kind of hop straight from the Shire to Bree, I, I love that in between journey and the novels. That's great. Um, in terms of all of the endings, I mean, that that's in, that's in the novels, but it's because Tolkien, um, he, he's telling a bunch of nested stories. And so it's like when you're, Putting a formula into a spreadsheet, with, which has multiple levels, you got to make sure that all those parentheses match at the other end. <laughs>
1: nice, David. Very nice.
0: So that so you've that's turned,
1: you've turned uh, Tolkien into math.
0: <laughs> well, I mean that's that's what he's doing. Is he's he's you know he's closing each of his threads in order, not only narratively but also geographically. Um, the one thing that I do miss from the original trilogy is the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. Um, but I do see how that would have been very, very difficult to pull off without in some sense compromising the, uh, the power of, of the, the climactic ending of the war of the ring and Mordor with the destruction of the ring and all the rest of it. Um, so I I can't, I can't imagine that working on film in the way it works in the book. So right. I, film film I has a forgive. need
2: for unity that a novel doesn't have.
0: Right. Which is what was wrong with the Hobbit movies. <laughs> Go ahead. Um The sin of the Hobbit movies is that they took a single well structured Buildings Roman novel. About the growth of a single character through the ch- over the course of a single unified adventure into a bloated three piece epic with multiple POVs. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I mean, The Hobbit is decidedly unepic
0: yeah the Hobbit is not an epic. The epic uh, the Hobbit is a coming of age story. It's about how Bilbo learns to grow beyond being his tiny chubby parochial self and mm-hmm. become a hero. Mm-hmm. That's what the Hobbit's about. Um, that's what the arc of the Hobbit narrative is. it's It's Bilbo growing up in some sense
2: right um, and part part of the irony is that's largely what Pete Jackson did with the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he he largely made it Frodo's story. Mm-hmm.
1: We were perfectly happy psychologizing Lucas in our Star Wars episodes. Mm-hmm. Would you guys like to try to figure out why on earth Pete Jackson, Peter Jackson, I'm not his friend, um, made three <laughs> movies out of The Hobbit? Other than just the obvious thing, which is he'd make a lot more money that way. I mean, is, the, is there some sort of artistic reason he had to do that?
0: Originally, from what I've heard, and I paid some attention to the movie buzz, um, it was going to be a movie. And then it was going to be two movies. And then it was going to be three movies. Um, And all of these decisions took place after Guillermo del Toro was no longer associated with the project. This Hmm. This was going to be Guillermo del Toro's Hobbit movie. Yeah, I remember that. And Peter Jackson was on record as saying that he thought this was a great idea because it meant that Middle Earth would not be dominated by his cinematic vision. Yeah. Oops. Well, I think what happened is that Del Toro left the project ostensibly to do something else um, while they were wrestling over the rights to do it to begin with. Then Peter Jackson became associated with it again and i can only imagine haha uh-huh, that what happens is is uh, a lot of studio pressure they wanted the lord of the rings all over again with all its marketing possibilities and if it's a one-off movie you don't have you know you don't have the franchise you don't have um the multi-year event that the lord of the rings was mm-hmm. uh, i think this had a lot to do with marketing
1: but the problem is i mean Peter Jackson has pretty much destroyed his legacy, right? He he will now always be the guy who made three good movies and three terrible movies. Mm-hmm. He's George. I mean George Lucas. That that's yeah. that's what he is. He he's a person. I mean, with Lucas, it's that nobody ever says no to him. I I I can't yeah. read the prequels any other way. But this is maybe even sadder. I, I mean, he not to not to revert to my. Late '90s high school self, but he sold out, man.
0: <laughs> well, I mean that 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 I think is is something. I I think that's kind of what happened. That I mean, I obviously I'm not an insider, but you know, from the stuff I read, it it seemed that you know, just for financial and marketing reasons, they wanted three, not one, not two. They wanted three, and so everything just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, with the result that there's an explicit love story and a story that had no explicit love story. You get mm-hmm. to see Fat Legolas, um, uh, just just prof- just profound goofiness. With the result that <laughs> almost everything in the Hobbit movie looks physically bigger than everything in the Lord of the Rings. When when you read them, they're precisely different, um, right. The the Hobbit feels smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, even the Battle of Five Armies at the end is not actually a, anything approaching the scale of, um, you know, the major battles in Lord of the Rings. But it all had to feel bigger because it had to be the same kind of big epic event again. Mm-hmm. The Hobbit isn't, and what they lost yeah. was the soul of the Hobbit.
2: Now, now the one thing that I will say nice about the Hobbit trilogy is that visually when the dwarves form up their shield wall at a full sprint, that was awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I liked the dwarves visually. I liked the way <laughs> they made them distinct. I really liked the way that they brought that out because they only the only thing that, that Tolkien does towards it is to give a couple of them a personality and then he color codes their hoods.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
0: <laughs> they, yeah, basically.
2: Except if there were thirteen of them, but you still only had four personalities.
0: Right. So, you know, I, I really I really appreciated that. I love Martin Freeman in that role, but
2: Oh yeah, I love Martin Freeman,
0: but oh man the thing that the thing that makes it saddest is is the wasted potential. It's not yeah. like it's a movie that sucked but it had nothing going for it anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just sad. Let's talk about something
1: else. Is it worse than the Zemeckis Beowulf?
0: No. <laughs> no. It's just there's just more of it.
2: Although I will say that I mean I, I I am more sad than angry about Zemeckis's Beowulf too because the concept of that movie was so cool that if they had executed it, it would have been really interesting.
1: Oh, but, you know, Zemeckis is another guy. I don't think he wasted his legacy because none of his bad movies are high-profile enough. Mm-hmm. You know, well, but at, at a certain yeah. point he decided he didn't work, want to work with human beings anymore and just do CGI, and it was, it was you know, the end of his productive career, at least uh, in his ability to produce a movie I want to see.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not as sad about Zemeckis as Beowulf because – I don't think Zemeckis loves Beowulf as much as Peter Jackson loves loves Tolkien. Right,
1: yeah. You get the sense and, that those first three movies are a labor of love for him.
0: And I'm s <laughs> I'm really sad for him <laughs> about about the Hobbit movies. Cause I, I can't help but think that, you know, if we you know, if we got him about five drinks in and he started to be really sad and honest <laughs> that he kind of feels this way too. Anyway.
1: You know, the the things I remember from those movies is how long the third one is. And mm-hmm. also how incredibly crappy the Balrog looks in the second one. Like how quickly the CGI aged. Because I must mm. have seen it in 2004, but already, already it looked like uh, the, the shark from Jaws 19. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Aww. I, well, I don't know. The, the 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 beauty of the original trilogy is how much of it is actual physical and in the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, anyway.
1: Like the the and, tricks uh, they use to make Elijah Wood look so much shorter than Ian McKellen.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that then that also the fact that
2: barrel doesn't bounce to hit seventeen goblins.
0: There's that, that too.
2: So.
1: <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about.
2: Uh, that, okay. There, there, there is an action sequence in, I believe, the middle Hobbit movie, that even if you're watching it as slapstick, it becomes sort of meta slapstick and terrible in its own way.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you 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 talk about the super long third movie, Michael. It's super long because Peter Jackson loves it. Yeah, he no, I get that. He, he can't bring himself to cut.
1: And I, I get that fans <laughs> of the movie, I mean, fans of the movie yeah. buy the the additions with an extra hour apiece, and I get that. Yes. I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine anybody enjoying the Hobbit movies from anything I've heard about them. No. Um, but I did not bother going to see them. And I was invited every year. Our honors program went went out every every year to see them. And every year I said, oh, I think I have something else going on that night. <laughs> <laughs> wise
0: decision. <laughs> <laughs> you made a decision about that night's opportunity.
1: I did, yeah. <laughs> and to wash my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to close with you guys making your best pitches to me or to anyone to read Tolkien. At its core, what keeps bringing you back to his work, and where should the hostile begin reading it?
0: Mm. Uh, what keeps me coming back is... Well, one um, th- these 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 books mean something to me in ways that I've already kind of I've already talked about. Um, so repeated repeated reading never takes that away. I still you know kind of remember being, you know, being eight and being fourteen, and you know, so the books remain important. Um, but. Among the things that bring me back is the fact that Tolkien genuinely believes in beauty and goodness, and unironically he believes in courage. Mm-hmm. And his his ability to to get that on the page where you feel it, um, is something that keeps me coming back. I I I, I love his ability to be so unironic so sincere so earnest and just lovely in the way he thinks about goodness and beauty and courage that keeps me coming back so things to read if you're hostile to Tolkien or deeply suspicious of him or whatever Um, I would actually recommend reading a book about Tolkien a nonfiction piece by Tolkien before attempting the Lord of the Rings with a positive perspective um this is an upcoming profiles interview, but I still recommend it. A Hobbit, a Wardrobe, and a Great War uh, by Joseph. I think it's Lacante. Um talking about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's experiences in World War One. And I really do help I really do think that it would help someone who's inclined to dismiss the Lord of the Rings if they view it as if you if you view him as a world war as a great war writer like the like the the poets of World War One, um, he really is working through a lot of those same issues and experiences, and I, I think that would help with a with a, a positive reassessment um, of reading the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien's essay on fairy stories is something that I recommend as well. In which he lays out what he sees as the serious job that um, fantasy fiction can do um, for human beings, and, and again, this helps you to um, even if you don't necessarily become sympathetic with what he says, you at least have a notion of what it, of what he's positively trying to do in uh, his Middle Earth fiction, and then. Uh, I recommend reading The Hobbit with or to a child. Hmm. Um, That's who The Hobbit is for. The Hobbit was told as stories to his children. Um, And I think you need to have something childlike in your perspective when you approach it. Reading it to a child really helps. I read it to my much younger sister and brother when they were little. And... um, I love the books even more after doing that because of being able to see them experience it as very young kids. Um, my sister Pamela called it the Bilbo the Hobbit book, and you know she 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 would knock on my knock on my bedroom door when I was you know living at home and you know in college uh she would knock on my door and when she's like four and ask me ask me to to read her from the Bilbo the Hobbit book and those are precious memories to me and I think that would help too Nathan
2: well first the pitch I think that one of the interesting things that happens intellectually in Europe and America after World War One is that you get a post-enlightenment reappropriation of ancient and medieval ideas Even beyond the sort of philological recovery of the manuscripts. Mm. And of course, you know, when I say that, you know, I'm thinking of figures like Martin Heidegger. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, figures like, although he was pre World War I, Friedrich Nietzsche still fits that mold. These are people who, after the Enlightenment, are looking back beyond the Enlightenment itself, but even back before Christianity and appropriating them in ways that, honestly, they would have been unintelligible in the 2nd century B.C.
1: Mm.
2: What I find fascinating about Tolkien is that he is doing the same thing, but doing so from a distinctively Roman Catholic perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that he is a precursor, honestly, to a lot of the intellectual projects that interest the three of us. Now, if you don't much like the three of us, then I guess that's not much of a pitch. But (laughs) I think that Tolkien is interested in being a medieval and a classical thinker in a post-Christian moment for the sake of Christian thinking in the same way that we are. And, I, and honestly, I'm a Tolkien person, as I said before, the way that David Grubbs is a Tolkien person. I still appreciate his place in our own genealogy. As far as where to begin with his work, uh, like I said, I, I my own history with it is so out of whack that I have a hard time saying, you know, I read Lord of the Rings before I read The Hobbit. I took two semesters of old English before I read Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm all messed up in that respect. That said, uh, you know, first of all, second, you know, David's notion that, you know, you need to read The Hobbit as a children's book and appreciate it in that framework because that's really where it does most of its work literarily. Uh, Beyond that, I would say that Digging into The Lord of the Rings with an eye for the different ways that it creates characters from the ways that other modern novels do is one source of great delight. You've got to remember that this is not a medieval book. This is a novel that is coming into the world that, you know, Faulkner and Hemingway and uh, Steinbeck are writing into. And it's doing things that are so gloriously different uh, Hmm. that if you put them into conversation with each other, it's just a whole lot of fun. So, Michael, why don't you take us home?
1: Well, I can't answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I hope hope this has proved elucidating for listeners. I hope it confirmed your prejudices. I'm probably still not going to read Tolkien. I've got enough (laughs) other stuff to read. David, what are we doing next week?
0: Next week, we're going to look at an essay by Dorothy Sayers, The Lost Tools of Learning, which apparently inspires a lot of homeschoolers. So that'll be fun. Oh, it does indeed.
2: All right.
1: Well, until then, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press agent. Amberly Copeland is our intern. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.